0: Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. By the way, why I just want to remind you why do we sing the Gloria Patre between the New Te- Old Testament and the New Testament? Because that was a prayer that was written to remind us that we are a people of two covenants, right? And it does come together. So it reminds us that what God's been, it's the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And that it's important that we recognize that. So that's why that prayer is sung. All right, let's listen to the Word of God. From Second Timothy chapter three, beginning with verse ten. Now you have observed my teaching, my conduct, my life and my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and my suffering, the things that happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, where persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Indeed, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The wicked people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving others and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching and for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let's pray. Open up our eyes, Lord, that through your word proclaimed, we may encounter you, the living word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. By the way, I mispronounced that city. It's Lystra. So if any of you are from there, I didn't want to (laughs) insult you. One of my favorite TV shows of all time, and again I only have talked about this recently, and I only knew it through reruns, was the old Andy Griffith show. I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. And the black and white ones, when Barney was still on. Okay? Alright? And if you remember, Barney was only given one bullet and he had to keep it in his pocket. Right? Because every time Barney had the bullet in his in his gun, he either shot his foot off or almost, you know, it was always gone off. And and I, I think that preaching is a little bit like that, all right? Uh, even the most careful exegete and learned exegete is a little bit like Barney with that gun. Unfortunately, when you preach, you're not pointing that at yourself. I'm pointing the gun at you all, all right? So I think there's a kind of weightiness, if you would, to how we approach the Word of God. And From an early child, I I was fortunate to be raised uh, uh, around people who really took the Bible seriously. My grandmother was the first one. I was memorizing verses before I could read. Um, I grew up in a church that put a lot of emphasis on the Bible, and I went to, I I joke, I call it the Bible concentration camp, (laughs) But, uh, but I learned a lot of the content of the Bible. So by the time I was graduating from high school, uh, I literally had books of the Bible memorized. I had a lot of knowledge, but but that was actually at a critical juncture where where I began to to see some problems. And I, there were two things that happened during my early college years that that kind of shaped um, a quest, if you would, to how to handle the scriptures and. Both of them happened among people who took the Bible very seriously. A conversation I had at, with the director of the, of the Bible concentration camp. He was he was a good man, and I dropped my sister off. I was in college and I hadn't seen him for a couple of years. And he says, "Brother Bill, come in and tell me what you're doing." And you know, as most people in college, you, you know, you struggle with your faith. And for me, I was trying to reconcile a lot of things. You know, I I came of age in the post Watergate, post-Vietnam era. So there was a lot of disillusionment uh, in our country. I'd seen some good pastors had been very influential in me as a child and as a young adolescent. I'd seen them treated very badly by churches. So I was, I was disillusioned with a lot of things. Um, but as I've said often, I, I, fortunately I had my grandmother's Jesus. I could never lose that. Okay, And so I was really reading the Sermon on the Mount. Is there something about the Sermon on the Mount that was helping me bring a lot of these different things together? Because it's a pretty radical, it's a pretty radical statement if you read what Jesus is saying. So uh, the camp driver said, "Well, brother Bill, what are you reading in, in the Word?" And I said, "I'm reading the Sermon on the Mount, and it's really challenging me." And then he said, "This. Well, you know, brother, that's not for this time." I go, well, "What do you mean? It's for the millennium. It's when Jesus returns. That's when that's we're supposed to listen to that." Now, if you're not familiar with that, that is dispensationalism. It's a, uh, your Schofield Reference Bible, Dallas Theological Seminary, Hal Lindsey—that's dispensationalism. And if you're a strict dispensationalist, you don't believe the Sermon on the Mount is to be taken seriously until Jesus returns. Now, I, I did ask them, I said, "Well, isn't the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount?" So they taught me pretty well. And he goes, well, yeah, but that doesn't count. So I was respectful. I remember, but I also remember, well, didn't we learn, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? That's also in the Sermon on the Mount. So somehow, the idea of selectively interpreting the Bible based on an outside ideology, I be, that became a problem for me. I found a church when I was away at college. What, then, you know, this all happened within about the same year. And a friend of mine was going to this church out in Indiana. And he was a person, an older, he was uh, you know, four or five years older than me, had a great influence. We worked at church camp together. And he was a person, one of the first people I encountered who really fully used his mind in the faith. So it was, it was, he was a very important person in my life. And he was going to this church, and he was just saying, this is the real church. And I remember going there, and I was impressed and troubled. I mean, there were things about it that I really was impressed. They had a great preacher. Um, They tried to live out everything literally. So they didn't get incorporated. They paid extra taxes because they didn't think the church should be a corporation. Uh, You didn't join that church. If you were a Christian, you were considered part of it. You just said, hey, I, I believe in Christ, and they welcomed you, and There were so many things that were kind of attractive about it, but there were things around the edges that, at the time, I didn't feel comfortable about. And later on, it turned out, this was one of those churches that took everything seriously, including the idea that God wants to heal you if you're sick. And the minister ultimately died because he didn't go to the hospital from a heart attack, and several members of the church ended up in prison because they didn't take their children to the doctors. Now, in fact, if you've ever read Philip Yancey's Disappointment with God, the opening chapters of that, or the opening illustration in that book is about this church. And Philip Yancey said about that church, he said, you know, they believed everything I believed, yet they took it to its logical conclusion, and it was a disaster. So on one hand, you have this kind of either selective interpretation, OK? Or you have people who take everything to the nth degree. And both of those have problems. Now, I also want to say that I I grew up in these evangelical circles. And when I joined the mainline, mainline denomination and went away to seminary, I was shocked at how many people didn't know the Bible. I was shocked at how many ministers didn't know the Bible. And I even later on taught at a Baptist Theological Seminary And I was equally shocked when so many of my Baptist students didn't know the Bible. So on one hand, you have people who take the Bible very seriously but do some selective work with it or don't do selective work and both things end up problematic. Or then you have people and we're kind of in that mainline group who have neglected the Bible. So where do we find... I don't even know if we need to find balance, but where is the right road to go, okay? Where is this light unto our path, as we talked about with the kids? You know, I think, first of all, there's some common sense involved. Now, when 1 Timothy tells us all scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, I'm fairly certain that Paul didn't have in mind quantum physics, neuroscience, and the platforms of American political parties. Okay. In other words, you know, the Bible wasn't written to be applicable directly to everything. All right, In other words, you want your doctor not learning his or her trade from the book of Leviticus. Okay, You want your neuroscience not to be studying the brain from the book of Revelation. And I'm pretty sure None of us want any of our politicians guiding our country from the book of Judges. Okay. Though we certainly could use a little more Jesus-inspired behavior, right? <laughs> from all of our politicians. See, I think we all need to read the Bible more and read it more critically and more devotionally. But we have to understand that the Bible is... Of a certain order, that the principles are applicable to everything, right? Okay, but they don't necessarily speak directly to everything, okay? And that's an important thing to keep in, in mind. Okay, so you know we can we can we can God bless our our uh, Mennonite brothers and sisters, um, and our Amish brothers and sisters. But I think we all realize that. You know, even, even I, I had, I've had friends, and I grew up among many of them, and it was amazing how they all had to make kind of adjustments, okay? I had, like, a friend of mine who didn't go to college. He was brilliant, but he computerized his, his milk, his dairy farm, okay? Okay? Now, his, his, his one friend didn't drive a car, but he drove a car that was black, all right? So we all we all make adjustments, all right? Even when we're consciously trying to be consistent. But where do we find a balance? Okay, in other words, how do we we avoid the extremes, or how do we avoid kind of the hypocrisy, where we just you know believe what we want to believe, and if anything's uncomfortable, we ignore it. Okay, right? And 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 who gets to decide what we change and what we don't change? These are all critical issues, and I'm not going to solve them in a sermon, but. I think as a helpful guide, and 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 2 Timothy 3.16 is a central verse about what is the meaning of Scripture, I think it's important to recognize that something every group does, every denomination, every non-denomination, every Christian consciously or unconsciously, has what we call a canon within a canon. In other words, we have a part of the Scriptures that we use to interpret the rest of the Scriptures. Okay? So, for instance, the Reformation has often read the whole New Testament through the eyes of we are justified by faith alone, Martin Luther's insight. Okay, It was a powerful corrective to the late medieval church, but it has its limitations. Okay? I would suggest that there are two really important guidelines or lenses by which to look at the scriptures that... They may not be perfect, but we're probably always on pretty solid ground if we use these two lenses of Scripture as we approach what does it mean that the Bible is inspired. And I think the first lens, and the most important one, is the lens of Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, we are told that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth. Okay, and he goes on in verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things. Okay, so the first lens, and primary lens we as Christians look at the scripture, is through the lens of Christ. Okay, God, the revelation of God is Jesus Christ, as we're told here in Colossians, and it's in other places as well. Okay, so What is the Word of God, capital W, Word of God? Well, the Gospel of John helps us out, right? In the beginning was the Word. Now, the Word is logos, and that's a loaded term. But when John is saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the world was created through God's Word, and then it goes on to say, and the Word became flesh, what's the Gospel of John talking about? Who is the Gospel of John talking about? Jesus. Okay? So Christ is the revelation of God. And that means that when we look at the scriptures, both the Old Testament and New Testament, that we're really looking through the idea of how does this relate to the revelation of God that is Christ. Now, as most of you know, I've spent a lot of time studying with Jewish scholars and spent a lot of time with Jewish and Jewish-Christian relations. And so, when I'm wearing that hat, I'm really important to try to hear how Jews read their Bible, okay, their Scripture. Matter of fact, sometimes I intention I go back and forth. Sometimes I call it the Hebrew Scriptures. Sometimes I call it the Old Testament because it's both. It's important to remember that you know. Jews, devout Jews, read their Bible and, and their scriptures in a very serious way and are fed by them. Right? And there's integrity in that. Okay? So it is the Hebrew scriptures. But, as a Christian, I believe that Christ is the revelation of God. Okay? And then I need to look at the covenant with Israel through the eyes of that. So there is an old and new covenant, old and new testament, from my perspective as a Christian. So, it's important to see that Christ is the measuring stick for the Bible and what we know and what we teach. Not only is Christ the measuring stick for our teaching and our doctrine and how we read the text, but Christ is also the measuring stick on how we apply the Bible. What's the last commandment Jesus gave us? That's why we have Monday, Thursday. Monday, Thursday, the mandate. That's what the word means. What was the last command he gave us? Or the new command. It was both the last and the new. Okay? A new commandment I give you, that you should love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. It goes on to verse 35. That's John 13, 34. John thirteen thirty-five. And all people will know you are my disciples if you love one another. So what we're to believe as we approach the scripture, we look through the lenses that Christ is the word of God. Christ is the revelation of God. Well, how are we to apply the teachings of the New Testament? How are we to live? Well, do we reflect the love of Christ to each other and to the world? So if you think of those two lenses and you approach 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So if you begin to think about that, so in terms of teaching and training, what we should believe and how we should live in a positive way these principles need to be viewed through the revelation of God. And as we read a text, how does this help me love as Christ love? So how does the text reflect Christ? And how does the text help me show the love of Christ to my brothers and sisters and to the world? So that's the teaching and training part. And the reproof and correction, well, it's just the same as above. How does this passage confront me that I'm not living in the love of God? How does this passage confront me saying I'm not acting in the way of Jesus? I've said this before. It's one of my favorite quotes uh, by Martin Luther. The Bible is our enemy. Because every time we read it, it destroys us. I once heard a a preacher say that, and I think this was Clarence Jordan, actually, um, the great Clarence Jordan, that if you're listening to the gospel stories and you identify with Jesus, you've gotten it wrong, (laughs) right? Because usually we wouldn't be—we're not Jesus in the story. We're the disciples who are confused, are telling them what he should do are running away, are worthy religious people who don't like what Jesus is saying. But almost never are we the righteous son of God. But that's what's good news about it. it. It helps us be better, right? What kind of parent would you be if you never disciplined your children? Right. I was talking to a colleague of mine. He says, you know, the trouble—I I don't know if he—I don't know if it was a compliment or an insult. He said to me, "You don't need people to like you, like I do." We were talking about our leadership style. I, I think he meant it as a compliment, but now I'm thinking about it. It might have been an insult. I don't know. I have to think about it a little bit. But I said to him, "Well, you've never been a parent, <laughs> and, and to be a good parent is to frequently not be liked." I love you so much that I'm going to make sure you are so ready to leave my house when it's time to leave." <laughs> I remember one of my sons said to me, I, I, I corrected him about something. And he's smart. He's a smart kid. And, and I said, all right, you know what? Maybe I was wrong. OK, convince me. Let's have a discussion. So make your argument. I said, you can even go take some time, get your thoughts together. And I will listen to your case. Well, he came and made his points, and I just made counterpoints. And he he threw the paper down. He goes, someday I'm going to be smarter than you, and I'm going to come back here, and I'm going to beat you in this argument. Mm-hmm. And I go, I live for that day. Mm-hmm. I said, but it wasn't today. <laughs> okay. now, I, I you have to have a little fun. You have to have a little, you know, it has to be a little recreational. All right, but no, but the point is that, the Bible confronts us because it, it, God loves us, and that's why we're confronted in the Word, right? right. And, uh, and when we're being good parents, uh, we do what's best for them even if it's not popular, right? Okay. And, and uh, we don't take any delight. Okay. I shared a, shared a story. You know, I have to confess that story, but, but I never took delight in, in upsetting them. I never took delight in having them be angry at me, right? But I love them enough to do that. right? And that's what the Bible confronts us because God loves us enough to do that. So this idea that if we look through the lens of Christ as a revelation of God and that we're to love as Christ loves, is the way we should live, then we look at this idea of inspiration, right? Okay, what does it mean that Scripture is God-breathed? Now, first of all, it should be pointed out that this text is actually referring to the Old Testament, right? The there was no New Testament when 2 when Timothy was written. But the principle is applicable to the writings of the New Testament because the church decided that together, the writings of the apostles and the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, is what makes the revealed word of God. Okay? So, so it's, it, it's not directly applicable to the New Testament, but it is now. It wasn't written that way, but it is now. And this idea of God breathed, there's kind of three images that come to mind when I think about God breathed. First of all, in Genesis chapter 2, right? God breathed into the Adama. Okay? So it was the life giving, right? It's a life giving force. In John, after the resurrection, Jesus breathed. On the apostles or the disciples that are disciples in John's Gospel, he breathed on the disciples the Holy Spirit. John has a different kind of Pentecost than Luke Acts, okay? And then we have this passage here that Scripture is God breathed. Okay, you probably have heard this before, but the word for breath and spirit is the same in in, in, in Hebrew, and, and that idea carries over into the Greek New Testament. So, what is the same about each of these incidents? God breathed into Adam, the Adam. God, Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit on the disciples. Paul says Scripture is God breathed. Well, there's two things, right? Each is initiated by God. God the Father. God the Son, the resurrected Christ. And the idea of the whole Trinity really is involved in the inspiration of scriptures, right? And each requires a human partner. Okay, right? Okay, I mean, God does the breathing, but Adam does the living. Christ does, the resurrected Christ does the breathing of the Holy Spirit, but the disciples, who by the way had just What did the disciples, what had they just done? They had run away, denied him, doubted him. This motley crew, what's Christ do when he's, the first time he sees them, he gives them the gift of the indwelling spirit of God. And scripture is given to human vessels. Now, this is why we have to be, you know, realistic about the Bible. Nothing that requires a human agent is going to be perfect. Okay? Right? Okay. If there's a human involved in it, it's already got a problem, right? If you take an ineffable truth, let's say the grace of God, the mercy of God, God's sacrificial love, as soon as you put that in words, you're already limiting it, right? I think probably all of us, in the most important and poignant moments of our life, whether they be sad or beautiful or joyful, we don't have the words for it, right? Why do we often get kind of, when we start talking about the people we love most in our lives, why do we get choked up about? because it's, it's, it's beyond words, right? It's something very deep. And humans have limitations because we can't live beyond the time we're in. Okay? So it's important to see that because humans were going to mess up the world, that didn't stop God from giving us life. Because the church was going to get a lot of things wrong, <laughs> that didn't keep Jesus from giving the Holy Spirit to his followers. And the same thing, because there's all kinds of problems with putting God's insight into words and all those problems are what comes along with being human. Nonetheless, it was God's intent that we have a written revelation, a written record, a, a witness to the revelation of God in Christ. So, The bottom line is that the scripture is an amazing gift that God has given us. The word of God written. It is an amazing gift that came through people from different times and places, but with the same limitations that you and I have. And because we all are going to be tempted to read the scripture selectively, and we have to, right, because we live in different times, Nonetheless, it's important for us, first of all, to read them, secondly, to know them, third, to understand them, but also to approach the Word humbly. I'm not saying like Barney Fife, you need to keep the bullet in your pocket. But you should approach the Word of God with a kind of humility, a kind of wonder, and a kind of openness to let the Spirit of Christ not only guide you in the inspiration, but may the Spirit of Christ, the person of Christ, the teachings of Christ, guide you in how you apply it. What I've laid out here is not perfect, nor is it complete. But I think if we keep our eyes on Christ, if we try not to, To live or interpret a passage in a way that does damage to the person of Christ? Or if we pull out a principle of Scripture and try to apply it in a way that leads us away from anything Jesus would have ever intended, then I think that's a pretty good guide to bring us back, right? Does this idea, does this position show the world that we love Jesus and love each other. Do people see Christ in how you teach and understand his word? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. May we always hide that word Of the Christ, who shows us not only who God is, but who we're supposed to be as humans. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen and amen. Let's stand together and proclaim what we believe in the words of the Apostles' Creed.